Hello, this is Philip Meerton, and while I'm taking a couple weeks off, I'm replaying some of the best shows from 2013. This next show is my conversation with Richard Panic, the author of the book The 4% Universe, which is all about science's quest to find the origin of dark matter, dark matter being that mysterious, invisible stuff that makes up something like a quarter of all the mass and energy in the universe, except we can't find it. The search for dark matter continues to today in January 2014, where Scientific American reports that the search for dark matter is starting to go cold. So dark matter will remain a big issue for science in the years to come, and I think that this show sheds light on some of the problems that this search entails. Listen in. Hello, my name is Philip Miriton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, since the beginning of time, people have wondered about this thing we call matter, stuff. They've asked the question, what is the world made out of? Now, the early Greek philosopher Thales thought water made up everything. Anaxanemes, another early Greek, thought it was air. Heraclitus thought fire was the fundamental element. And then there's Epidocles, another Greek, who thought earth, air, fire, and water were the fundamental constituents to matter. Democritus, we may recall, is probably the first particle physicist. He thought the fundamental constituent of matter was atoms. Newton used the word corpuscles. And then, of course, we have Bishop Berkeley on the other extreme, who took the much more radical stance, who said that matter was really only an idea in the mind of God. Now, today we look out at this vast, seemingly endless three-dimensional space we call the universe and we see billions and billions of galaxies each themselves containing billions and billions of stars and there is certainly a lot of stuff out there but here is where the mystery begins because today scientists believe that most of the stuff that makes up the universe is actually missing it's called dark matter and there's another form of mysterious energy called dark energy. In fact, 96% of the universe, according to modern scientific theory, is actually missing. Now for those looking for a story combining science, intrigue, and mystery, they need not go to the fiction shelves in the local bookstore. They need only go to the science shelves and pick up a book about the search for dark matter and dark energy, the dark side of the universe. Now today I'm happy to have the author of one of the best books out there, not only in dark matter and dark energy, but in the field of science and current scientific theory, Richard Panic. Now, Richard Panic is the author of the book, The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover 
the rest of reality. He's the author of two other books on the history and philosophy of science for non-specialists. One's called The Invisible Century, Einstein, Freud, and the Search for Hidden Universes. And the other one is called Seeing and Believing, How the Telescope Opened Our Eyes and Minds to the Heavens. Now his book, The 4% Universe, by the way, did win the award uh, for the best uh, science book from the AIP Science Communications uh, outfit who regularly awards this uh, award to books that uh, are written for the general public's interest. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, well, first of all, you've written a topic that a lot of people, about a topic that a lot of people see in the newspapers. I, I know that in the one of the last issues of New Scientist magazine, there was a cover story on dark matter but probably a lot of people don't really know what it is. So let's start off with the question, what is dark matter? Well, if you know, um, you can book yourself a flight to <laughs> Stockholm. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Uh, it's, uh, we don't know what it is. We have some ideas about what it might be, uh, but we uh, scientists think that it's there because uh, they, they see the, uh, the, um, the gravitational uh, effects. So they see, they see the evidence for it, but they don't know what it is. And, and I think that, that that's really, that's really the, 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 uh, the central point here, and that is it seems to me from my, my understanding of dark matter that it is assumed to be there because of gravitational effects. It's, it's not something that anyone has actually seen through a telescope, for example, right? Right. 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 And, so, and so, you know, when we think of matter, and this, this, is what I, this is what I like to get a handle on. When we think of matter, obviously, we think of something that um, you could see. And I think Newton said it was something like uh, something that resists a force, you know, something that's there, something that's solid, uh, that, that occupies space. And from from your book, I I'm getting the idea that dark matter is none of those things. <laughs> it's none of those things. You can't see it, and as far as we know, it's it's um, well, does it resist a force? I mean, I guess that's another way to put it. Is it something that's solid? Well, I, it's not. It's not solid. Does it resist a force? Well, I mean, it does. Re it does interact gravitationally with what we would consider regular matter. So. Does that fit Newton's definition? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That that's one thing that's puzzled me is that it's one thing to say it's dark, you can't see it. Well, that that brings up the question as well: is it simply something that can't be observed? But but it seems to me that it's from from my my understanding of this is that it's some it's some kind of unknown energy or matter that not only is invisible. But but is not solid. But I, I guess I don't really know. And, and you and you started this show by saying that if someone knows, well they could they could uh, they're on the road to a Nobel Prize. But but I'm not sure whether scientists are saying that dark matter is is not solid either. And maybe it's not important. But but what do you think on that topic? Do you, do you have any sense? Well, yeah. What attracted me to the to the topic initially was the idea of not being able to see it. Yeah. 
that it's that's so counterintuitive. But I also I also like those moments in history. <clears throat> excuse me. I also like those moments in the history of science where your assumptions are overturned, um, but there are assumptions that you didn't even realize you'd been making. So all throughout history, we've been doing astronomy by looking at the sky and observing what's there. And it hadn't occurred to us that there might be something else there that we can't see. I mean, with, it's beginning with Galileo, we say, okay, there are more objects out there that we can't see with the naked eye, but we can see them with telescopes. Well, this is something that you can't see with telescopes. Uh, and it's not in any part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's not infrared. It's not, you can't see it in x-rays and, and radio waves or anything. And, um, Vera Rubin, who was an astronomer who was one of the key discoverers of the evidence for dark matter, uh, once said, um, we've, uh, nobody ever told us that all matter radiated. We just assumed that it did. But I like that it's that unthinking assumption that gets overturned. Yeah, well, one of the one of the great things about the story of dark matter, and you and you do it so well in your book, is that there's so many characters uh, who participate in the story of dark matter. I mean, we'll we'll do dark energy in a minute, and we and those are two distinguished, I mean, distinguishable <laughs> forces or, or 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 elements in the universe. But but Vera Rubin herself uh, was was one of the first women I th to in physics as far as I can tell to make this this uh, this finding this discovery that really shook cosmology I mean she, this I mean she is really a unique person in herself uh, you know in my opinion but she's great I, I've gotten to know her through the research and I really I really enjoy being with her in fact a couple of years ago when the book came out there was an event at uh, Pros and politics, or yeah. politics and pros? Which is it in Washington? Okay. Uh, politics and pros. Sorry. Um, and I knew that she lived in the same neighborhood, so there was going to be a, an event there. I was going to give a reading, and so, but I invited her there, so we built the evening around her, yeah. and it was really fun. So she got to participate in the Q and A, and it was it was really great. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a, I think it's it's probably good for the listener for you to describe her contributions a little sure. bit. I mean, just 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 to put this in context. Sure. And and because a lot of people may never have heard of her, but she is a central figure in the dark matter story. So why don't you just tell folks a little bit about what Vera Rubin contributed to this story about dark matter? Sure. In the 1960s, she was uh, working at the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism in Washington, and she was sharing an office with somebody who had recently developed an, uh, an improvement on the existing technology for, for that. Um, I, we don't need to go into, into the details of it, uh, but it was an improvement on technology that, that allowed you to see uh, certain certain aspects of the universe in finer detail than had ever been possible. So she w used this instrument uh, by to look at the Andromeda galaxy, which is like our sort of twin galaxy, uh, also known as M31. And what she did was, astronomers have been looking at uh, at the rate that that the stars and gas in Andromeda. Uh, were rotating. Now we can't see that with our eye, but using this instrument, you can you can you can measure um, what's called the redshift and the blue shift, uh, the the which tells you how much 
uh, the, the parts of the spiral are, are orbiting the center. Um, well, what she could do is look farther out along those spirals than anybody else had ever been able to do before. Now, before her, people you know, would assume that because the galaxy uh, has this big bulge in the center, um, you, you know, you're familiar with, the, with what the sp uh, spiral galaxy looks like. I mean, I think everybody's right. seen pictures of them. Right. And you would assume that it operates the same way that our solar system does uh, under the influence of the big gravitational bulk at the center of it, the sun. Uh, so people assumed that uh, that there would that you know the farther away from the center you were, the slower uh, the gas and and stars in Andromeda would be orbiting the center. In the same way that you know Neptune orbits the sun uh, at a much much slower rate than uh, than Mercury, for instance, which is the nearest planet to the sun. Right. What she found by going out farther along the the spiral was that. The, was that the outer parts of the visible part of the galaxy were orbiting at the same rate as the innermost parts. And this violates uh, Newton's law of, gra of gravity. So either Newton's wrong or there's something else there. And eventually through computer modeling, uh, theorists were able to figure out that if you put a substance that you can't see around the galaxy. If you imagine that it's uh, like immersed in the center of something else, then the gravitational effects begin to make sense because you have this, this um, let's say it's a, it's a globe of matter that's stabilizing the galaxy, the visible galaxy, uh, in the middle of it. Yeah, and I think I think that that what's what's really interesting here, among other things, is that. As far as I know, spiral galaxies would not be possible unless there was something like dark matter. Because according to, and you, and you said it before, according to Newton's law of motion, where I think the farther you are from the gravitational source, the slower the orbit. I think it's something like that. Right. And, and so therefore, those outer stars in the galaxy would slow down and, and they would flatten out. It, it would they would it, it would not stay in the pinwheel shape right right it would de it would destabilize right. even before it would even before it could complete one rotation yeah yeah and so and so that 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 is what's so amazing about this about this story to begin with is that we really have a conflict between the way the galaxies look at Newton's laws of motion Right, and, and and to me, it reminds me of of the computer games, you know, Sim City or Sim Universe. Of course, not that I know anything about those programs, other than they, other than you simulate worlds and everything. But it's like you have this galaxy; it, it's not making sense, and so, and so the the cosmologists are sort of inserting uh, matter where where they need it in order to keep that galaxy in shape. Right. Yeah, and, and that that's 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 what's amazing. I mean, and 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 one of the one of the reasons I wanted to do this is to is to just to show show the the listeners the mysteries that remain in science, and 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 we're just sort of scratching the surface right here on, on dark matter. But it's but it's so it's such a compelling story, where where all of a sudden, uh, Vera Rubin, 
looks up at the heavens and finds that that those galaxies are really disobeying the laws of motion which everyone grew up with as being you know um in uh valid for all time i mean everybody assumes that that newton's law of gravity is consistent throughout the universe right and and i, and I guess you'd say the same thing about you know if you want to convert that to to einstein and so now all of a sudden we have we have an observation that contradicts it so so uh so vera rubin was is really considered to be uh one of the discoverers of dark matter, but wasn't there that cranky guy earlier in the 20th century with his, what was the wiki was his name? Right. Fritz wiki. So, so, yeah. so, so where does he fit into the story? Well, he made observations. Uh, I think it was the coma cluster of galaxies in the 1930s that again, uh, you know, Vera Rubin was doing it on a galaxy by galaxy basis. And there were other astronomers who came along uh, at the same time she was working on it, and and then later, who made the same, you know, who who repeated these observations on spiral galaxy after spiral galaxy after spiral galaxy. Zwicky was working on a larger scale. He was looking at a cluster of galaxies, okay. and the motions weren't making sense uh, gravitationally, that they were doing the same kind of odd behavior that Vera Rubin and others would observe on a case-by-case basis. Um, the problem there is that uh, my my understanding is that is that uh, is that people today can't go back and recreate his observations because of record keeping and so on. So we don't know exactly what he was doing and what he was measuring and how accurate it was and so on. Um, and in a, in any event, the idea uh, that he um, propagated in the in the 30s kind of vanished in the literature until uh, until the late 1960s and then throughout the 70s as the evidence accumulated for dark matter. Did you ever, in, in, in uh, talking with, with Vera Rubin and all the other f- folks that you interviewed for your book, do you have any, any idea of why, why Vera Rubin wasn't more honored than she was for this discovery? Do you think that it just wasn't enough, or was it was it something having to do with the male-dominated um, scientific community? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she was certainly she has certainly been well awarded in yeah, her in her right. life. I mean, she's won in the astronomical community, uh, you know, the highest honors. Yeah, uh, I think that there was resist. I know that there was resistance initially to her be, um, because number one, she had this kind of outlandish observation, a uh, series of observations, and uh, number two, because she was a woman. So, you know, it's one thing to have a series of outlandish uh, observations, and people can, you know, resist that, but a, a lot of times my understanding is that is that the nature of the resistance became personal, yeah. which is not, you know, scientifically professional, but that's the way science works. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's something else I want I. I want to talk about in a second, and, and this is this is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Richard Panic about his new book, The Four Percent Universe, and we're about to talk about how much of the universe is really dark. Now, just just in focusing on dark matter for a second, okay? Because we have to talk about dark energy too to get to the whole dark universe issue. 
Okay. The how how much of the universe is dark matter compared to what we would call normal matter? About uh, it's in the it's in the twenty percentish range. It's about twenty four percent, something like that. Uh, new numbers have just been released through the Planck uh, uh, Satellite Observatory. Uh, and um, and I'm not up to date on those numbers, but generally it's been considered in the uh, in the 24 percent range. Yeah, and I think I think just just to just to just to put a gloss on that, I think that when you add up the total mass and energy uh, in the cosmos, or soon to be in the cosmos, only four percent, and this is the title of your book, only four percent, right. I think, is what we would consider to be normal matter. Normal matter being tables, chairs, dust, stars, planets, etc. Right? And, right. and right. it's at ninety-six percent uh, that is this mysterious stuff, either matter or energy. And right. so, and so that is what is remarkable to me is that. According to the latest theories of science, something like there's something like five times as much of this dark matter as there is normal matter. So, so, so when you look up at the heavens, and I don't know what the latest count of the stars and the galaxies is. I always, I always use the number I, I, that I've seen elsewhere, something like a hundred. What is it? A hundred billion galaxies, each with a hundred billion stars, whatever it is. Yeah. But the point is, is that, that means that there's five times as much dark matter out there, right. uh, which, which, which is an amazing conclusion that that cosmologists are drawing. I mean, right. I mean, uh, one of the questions I I have that that actually was prompted by this article I just read is that why why would it be that dark matter happens to be uh, located in galaxies why why isn't or or why isn't dark matter homogeneous throughout the entire mm -hmm. universe well it presumably would be if it were if it were uh, generated in the earliest uh, moments of the universe's existence right. uh, it would be all around us I mean there are a couple of uh, candidate particles that are Hypothetical at this point, uh, but if they existed, they uh, if they do exist, they would exist uh, in in such a quantity that they would be passing through you or me um, right this second. Like trillions of them would be passing through us right this second. That now, so you would say, well, then if it's everywhere, why is it why is it just affecting galaxies? It's a it's it's actually the, the question you asked is why is it just around galaxies? I, I think that you need to invert that idea and say the galaxies are there because of the dark matter. Um, so yeah. uh, so over the course of the universe's history, thirteen point eight billion years, uh, the dark matter is um, the concentrations of dark matter are actually what determined. This, the large-scale structure of the universe, and you know the the superclusters of galaxies that that we that we see today, uh, but also determine you know the the formation of individual galaxies as well. So it's a it's a matter of gravitational clumping. So even though it would be uh, more or less homogeneous, as you said, um, more or less. I mean, on very large scales, it would be present throughout the universe. Uh, it 
it has also collected in certain areas, and so, we call those areas galaxies. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a somewhat of an unfair question, uh, but it, but but if you know, but it, but it, it it's something that actually comes up a lot in the literature on this on this uh, topic on the dark matter topic, which is that it seems like there's two schools of thought on how to approach the this dark matter problem. The problem being what the heck is dark matter, and and why can't we find it? It seems like there's one school of thought that says that, well, if we have the right particle accelerator or when, or when they pump up the energy level of the Large Hadron Collider in, in France, that they reach energy levels, that there's these neutrino experiments, and there's all sorts of other experiments that you probably know about uh, around the world looking for dark matter, looking for some kind of exotic particle. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is is adjusting the laws of gravity and i'm just wondering where, where it based upon your research and and all the people you've talked to where do you think the answer is going to be and I, I told you it was an unfair question so i, I just asked <laughs> <laughs> but i warned you ahead of time at least right uh no it's it's actually a fair question it's it's completely reasonable I mean, it's a question that uh scientists ask themselves all the time you know, t tinkering with the laws of gravity is, uh, and we'll get to this later on with dark energy, um, where, we, where, where the problem becomes even more pressing. Um, you know, I think that, you know, people, scientists in, that, who I've interviewed and, you know, just casually talked to about this uh, say, yeah, you know, there is, there is a problem and we don't want to rule anything out. Um, so there are there have been over the past 30 years um, a number of, of um, theories or variations on one theory about what, you know, how to tinker with the laws of gravity on large scales. I mean, you know, the idea is, okay, we know that gravity works on Earth, we know it works in the solar system, but maybe if you go off and start measuring gravity on really large scales in the universe, maybe you need to tinker with the equations. Uh, to date, that hasn't quite work like they can't you know the theorists can't can't quite get get the uh get the calculations to work right on the other hand the particle physicists haven't been able to find the particle so you know there people in general in the field think that it is a particle and an exotic particle as you said and that eventually it will be discovered but, you know, I mean, we've, we've been talking about Vera Rubin, and she remains agnostic on, on the subject. You know, I think that she, she you know, she, what she likes to say is every, you know, for the, every five years, somebody says, oh, the, dark, the discovery of the dark matter particles about, is probably with five years away. And she says people have been saying that since 1980. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's constantly five more years, five more years. So, you know, so she herself says, look, I don't, I don't know what it is. That's, that's the theorist's problem. I'm, I'm an astronomer. I'm an observer. I just give them the data. They can figure out, you know, they can solve the problem. Yeah, well, it, about every other show, we, I, I, come, I come back to something Einstein said about, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I won't be able to get it exactly, something like uh, you can't solve a problem with the same level of consciousness that created it, something like that. And, and so part of, part of the problem, I think, in science is, 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 the, is the, I'm going to say, the resistance to thinking outside of the box. 
Uh, on the other hand, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to qualify what I just said because there are a lot of pretty wild theories out there that make it into Scientific American and New Scientists and the science magazines about all these, all these different ways to explain it. In fact, I think in your own book, you, you sort of go through a litany of different articles on the dark energy topic. Right. And my, my point being that, that it could be something that folks just haven't been able to get their heads around because of what certain people would call normal science or, or, or the scientific or the, or the, uh, particle, uh, centered approach to solving some of these problems my own my own view is that i think it's more likely that the laws of gravity would have to be adjusted than the particle but of course that's just uh me being a non-specialist out there although i have i I have read up on this because it's such an interesting topic but this is philip merton this is conversations beyond science and religion we're talking with richard panic the author of the four percent universe and we're about to move into an, an, another really intriguing area uh, involving something else that's dark. This is called dark energy. Now, now your book, The 4% Universe, uh, gives really two separate stories, the story of the, of the search and status of dark matter, but then we have a whole nother more recent story regarding dark energy. So once again, uh, why don't why don't you, Richard, just sort of give some context on how this dark man, dark energy mystery started? Okay. Uh, once you re- once you discover that the universe is expanding and that evidence emerged in the 1920s, uh, you can you can say, okay, it's expanding. What is it expanding from? Can we run the film backwards? And then you come up with the Big Bang theory, and there were, you know, there were competing theories, but now uh, the consensus has coalesced around Big Bang theory that that the universe uh, began in an infinitesimal uh, state, and then has been space has been expanding since then. It's not that the universe blew up or anything like that. It's just that space is expanding. Okay, you have a universe that has matter in it, and the space is expanding. All the matter in it is interacting gravitationally with all the other matter in it. So this expansion of space is, you know, is is going fast, let's say. But over time, you expect that it's going to slow down because there's matter interacting gravitationally. And that's going to slow the expansion of, of the space. So astronomers and physicists in the 1980s began looking for the evidence of how much that expansion was slowing down. What was the what they call the rate of deceleration. And what they found over the course of the 1990s uh, by observing a, a type of supernova called the supernova 1A uh, at farther and farther distances across the universe, uh, they were expecting uh, to, to find the evidence that the universe that you know how much the universe's expansion was slowing down. What they found instead was evidence that it's speeding up. Now, if you have a universe that's full of matter and all the matter is interacting gravitationally with all the other matter, and that universe is speeding up, you have to say then there's something else 
that's interacting with space, there's a property of space that is on large scales counteracting the force of gravity. That's what they call dark energy. And, um, and that name is, you know, is, is an echo of dark matter, and it is uh, equally uh, a punt. We don't know what it is. So yeah, yeah. I like to say I like to to say that that uh, scientists or or cosmologists don't really know what it is, but but they but they've given it a name, and and I I think that you know the way you put it was very good because the in in the simple model you have this primordial expansion that people call the Big Bang, and and some people call an explosion. I don't really think it makes much difference, but. In any event, there was this outward force propelling matter outward. And, and one would think, just by logic, that the expansion is going to slow down and, and because of the attractive pull of gravity, the mass, right? And, but, but what you're saying is that when scientists, cosmologists, started looking closely at the supernovas, um, using that standard candle approach, whatever it was called, they found that that something is is accelerating the expansion, which 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 is very weird. It's sort of like you shoot a cannon off, but the the cannonballs pick up speed when they're what when they're what a hundred miles, you know, when they're halfway down their journey. Right. And, and so it's really so 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 this this brings up this this amazing story about Einstein and the cosmological constant, right? I mean, because, and, and why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because, because that story with Einstein is so, it, it comes up a lot because everybody loves to quote his line about the cosmological constant being his biggest blunder. And, and then you, and then you wind up having all these stories about how, well, maybe it really wasn't a blunder after all, but, but I think, to, to connect the dots here, why don't you talk a little bit about the cosmological constant and how that relates to dark energy, if you can. Sure. So when these astronomers and physicists in the 1990s uh, came to this, uh, or were beginning to come to this conclusion that the universe might be accelerating, they had to, they had to ask, you know, they had to look in the literature and, you know, talk to the theorists. And the theorists it turns out, you know, ahead of the observers were, were saying, you know, they could, the theorists were saying, well, yes, that's possible, you know, that, that, that there could be this kind of, kind of countervailing uh, force, if you want to call it that, in the, in the universe. It's in the, it's, it's theoretically possible um, because look at Einstein. And then they go back and you go, and you go to Einstein's Theory of General Relativity, when he, uh, that was published in 1916, uh, he, he was doing the equations in 1915, and then in 1917, he, uh, Einstein sat down and said, okay, how can I take this idea of general relativity and apply it to the universe? Can I come up with the cosmological equations for it? And he did, but what he found was that the, that universe, the one in his equations, would be unstable. And in 1917, if you go through the most powerful telescopes in the world and you look out at the universe, it's not unstable. It's not falling apart. It's not doing anything. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's doing that Newtonian 
dance where, you know, planets orbit the sun and, and galaxies orbit their central bulges if it's a spiral galaxy and so on, you know, that everything is stable. So he had to put into his equations uh, of, of uh, what came to be called the cosmological constant, which was just a fudge factor. It was just, you know, arbitrarily he chose the Greek symbol lambda and stuck it in the equations and just said, something is stabilizing the universe, and, and I just need something in here to stabilize the universe. A few years later, uh, Edwin Hubble discovers that uh, the American astronomer Edward Hubble uh, finds that there's uh, finds evidence that the universe is not stable, and that in fact on the largest scales it's expanding. Uh, I mean, on the largest scales, the, the, he finds the evidence for for the expansion in that uh, galaxies seem to be receding from one another at rates proportional to their distances. That is, the farther they are from each other, the faster they seem to be receding from one another. So now you have an unstable universe, and it turns out that the cosmological constant, the thing that Einstein put in there to stabilize the universe, is no longer necessary. Hence the idea of it being his biggest blunder, in that he had discovered, the, theoretically, he, he discovered the, ex, the expansion of the universe uh, about you know, 10, 12 years before it was observationally discovered. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's such a it's such a classic story because it because and that's what I, I want to emphasize as well here is there's like a sociological component to it, not only to Einstein and his cosmological constant, but to but to the search for dark energy today. And by that I mean it it's an unpopular position to say that the universe is flying away and and is going to disperse to the to the vast void after you know, millions or billions of years. Nobody, nobody wants to live in an unstable place. And Einstein, uh, as far as I know, his, his equations, his original equations, predicted the expansion of the universe a la, similar to Hubble, but Einstein didn't want to, to come back and tell people that, uh, that the universe is going to expand forever or disappear or be unstable. And so he so he put in the fudge factor, uh, right? it was uh, and 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 that's what's 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 amazing about it is that the fudge factor there was there's actually some truth to it. Is that is that right with the dark energy? Uh, right. So so Einstein inserts the fudge factor in order to stabilize the universe, something to um, to keep it from expanding or contracting, for that matter. That's true. Uh, so he puts in the fudge factor. Hubble discovers the evidence that, in fact, the universe is expanding. And after that, lambda, the cosmological constant, is still in the equation, but people just set it to zero, that it's not having any effect. But it is, it's in the equation, and theorists in the 1990s, for reasons that are, um, that are, that are complicated, and I, I explain them in the book, and I hope I explain them in a, in a kind of clear fashion, but, um, you know, I try to lay them out according to what the theorists were thinking and, and asking really pretty basic questions, but then the answers become more and more complicated. Theorists had a good reason to think that, in fact, the fudge factor shouldn't be zero. So when the observers in 1998 
are coming to the conclusion, 1997, 1998, they're coming to the conclusion that the universe is accelerating, the expansion is accelerating, uh, they go to the theorists. And the theorists say, well, we've been thinking that actually lambda shouldn't be zero. And if that's the case, then uh, if you insert a lambda into the equations and you set it at more than zero, then you begin to get uh, on paper the calculations, the equations that match what the observers were finding in the universe, and that is an acceleration. Yeah. Yes. And and what what is um, sort of related to this story that is a, that's really important and, and I think really interesting as well is this concept of a flat universe, because a because a flat universe is really a stable universe. Right. I mean, it's a, sort of the same thing, and everybody would love to be in a flat universe. I mean, you know, we tend to have these opinions not thinking that we're, we're talking billions and billions of years before anything really happens on a cosmic scale, but, a, but a, a flat universe is sort of a balanced universe, and it's also the most improbable universe, right, because, because it has to, there has to be some kind of correlation between the repulsion and the and the attractive uh, force of matter, and and the dark energy, it, it it sort of balances the universe, right? It it sort of it sort of puts in the right amount of energy to give us the flat universe, which which sci which cosmologists are observing. Right. 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 And that, which is which is which is an amazing fact that tends to get lost in some of these. Um, discussions on this topic. I mean, the whole topic of a flat universe, which is, I think, originally called the flatness problem, is 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 in itself just just a really interesting topic. But but in in sort of in summary, right now, what we have is we have this mysterious force called dark energy, which is giving the expansion of the universe sort of in a turbo boost. But it turns out that if the dark energy isn't a certain uh, force or a certain uh, value, uh, then we w then we wind up living in a flat universe, and, and which is what everybody wanted to begin with, and and so 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 tell tell us Richard where where are where are folks in in finding what dark energy is? What's what's the latest on this? Okay, well the the, the question becomes once you. Once you accept the evidence, and it took a few years, obviously, for people to, uh, for people in the field to feel comfortable with this, you know, counterintuitive result. Uh, but once they did, then theoretically, you would say, okay, is this whatever this is, dark energy? Is it uh, is it constant over space and time? That is, is it is it a property of space itself? Or does it vary over space and time, in which case it's something else and all bets are off. Uh, and the, um, the evidence, the observational evidence has been increasingly strong that it is, in fact, a property of space itself and, uh, and is constant over space and time. And that evidence has become pretty compelling. The other feature here, though, is that doesn't this lead to some folks believing that we have to live in a multiverse because, I mean, uh, putting this together, because the one source of the 
dark energy, I understand, would be the quantum fluctuations in in space or the vacuum energy. But right. the, but the vacuum energy apparently is way way bigger than the observed dark energy. Right. right. We were talking about uh, what value you want to give to lambda, and. As I said, theorists had just set it to zero for several decades. Uh, it turns out that its value, as we measure it, is something like 0.72. And we would say that that means it's 72% of a flat universe, as you said. But it doesn't have to be set to that number. It could be set to any number. But that number, I mean, it could be set to, uh, to the to the to the theoretical number, the one that you were just referring to, the quantum, uh, the, the number that you would get out of quantum theory, which would be uh, 10 to the 125, rather than 0.73. Right. So that's a, it's a, it's a big difference. Yeah, you know? that's a big uh, and, that, and that highlights the problem that has been going on in physics for a number of years, which is the, the effort to reconcile the, uh, the physics of the very, very small, the quantum level, and the physics of the large, which is general relativity. Um, and that has uh, el eluded theorists for years. So when you were talking earlier about uh, kind of, you know, wild ideas uh, and whether or not scientists are resistant to that, they, they know that they have a problem. I mean, you know, I've, I've gone to a lot of conferences where they just say, we need a new physics. We need the next Newton, the next Einstein, to come along and put this together. And so far, that hasn't happened, and nobody really knows how to do it. There was an idea that string theory might be able to account for it, but that, that idea has been losing steam over the last decade or so. At least that's my understanding. Um, so you have this huge discrepancy between observation, which um, does, in fact, uh, comport with general relativity, you know, a fudge factor was in the equation, lambda was there, and it equals 0.73 or whatever. Uh, and then you have the quantum equations which say, well, if it's there, it should either, uh, it, well, it should be either 0 or 10 to the 125. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a problem. That seems to be a problem. Uh, this is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Richard Panic, the author of The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality, and we're about to touch upon the multiverse uh, again, and what, what, what to me is uh, very sort of interesting about about where we're at right now, and let me, let me try to put this together for a second, and that is, we have an observed uh, value for dark energy and as you said it's something like 0.72 and which is 0.72 of the total mass energy in the universe and that that is the observed value when but when cosmologists go and look around for well where is that energy coming from one source would be the vacuum energy the vacuum energy as you said is something like 10 to the 125 power times more than the observed value of dark energy meaning something isn't right and then you have people who are as prestigious as Steven Weinberg who won a Nobel Prize for the electroweak theory 
and, and has written a bunch of bunch of uh, popular science books as well. He 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 says that this this problem, this dark energy problem, the the unique value of dark energy. Why why of all the values is it 0. 0.72 that uh, ha, that uh, that allows us to live in this stable universe where life life exists? That this particular value is what leads him to believe in the multiverse, and and that that I think is a is fascinating because the story, you know, the story roams around, and we have people like Steven Weinberg uh, saying, well, it, it, there must be a multiverse, then there must be billions of other universes out there, and we just happen to live in the one that has this 0.72 value of dark energy. Right. It's uh, the idea behind it is called the anthropic principle, right. and uh, about I think it, it was it was I think in two thousand one I was at a conference and uh, where you wouldn't I mean people wouldn't even say the word they would call it the A word yeah. that's how much they hated the idea of of us living in that the fact that we can observe the universe means that we live in a kind of universe that would be that would allow us to to exist in the same way that there's a habitable zone around the sun and we exist there um, and the, the reason we exist there is because we're in the habitable zone around the sun right. uh, in the same way we live in this universe that is conducive to a life form that can observe it and think about it um, if the universe comes out of a quantum fluctuation and for your, for your listeners, um, according to uh, particle physics, there is no such thing as nothing, that even the vacuum has uh, an energy to it, and there are, um, there are particles popping in and out of existence all, all the time. Um, and, uh, and one of those quantum pops could theoretically have given rise to the universe. Now, if that happens, there's a theory called inflation, uh, which has become pretty well accepted over the past 30 years, uh, that shortly after that quantum pop, if you will, uh, in the first um, 10 to the minus 36 uh, second of the universe's existence, um, it would have undergone what's called a phase transition, or more commonly called inflation, which would have uh, which which would have expanded the size of our universe appreciably, but also would have led to other universes, other bubbles, uh, if you if you will. And if that's the case, then you begin to see the logic here that oh well, we live in in the universe. I mean, we live in this just so universe. And you say, well, why why should that be? Why should the universe be precisely balanced for our existence? And if you say that there are um, you know, billions, more than billions of other universes out there, there's a multiverse, then it begins to make sense because each of those universes has its own property of physics, has its own, has its own values. And in one universe, the value for lambda might be three, in which case that universe destabilizes almost immediately. In another universe, it might be zero, and the same thing, it destabilizes. Um, and our universe is, um, is the one that stabilizes, that has the value for dark energy that allows it to stabilize, uh, and therefore um, and therefore, it's the one that we can observe. I mean, it's the one that people can live in. Yeah. But this was, this was really a hated idea 
But but the evidence for inflation has been accumulating, and once you have the evidence for inflation, I mean, I talked I talked with a theorist or an astrophysicist, I should say, at the Space Telescope uh, Science Institute named um, Mario Livio, and uh, and he was one of the people in two thousand one who was really adamant about about being anti anthropic principle. And a few years later, he wrote an article for Science in which he came out in favor of the anthropic principle. And I asked him once, I said, "What happened?" And he said. You get in, he said, once you accept inflation, the multiverse just is, it's, it's inevitable. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's sort of, I mean, I uh, want to say, well, first of all, uh, I had Paul Steinhardt on the show last year because he had written an article in Scientific American uh, on inflation. Oh, right. Yeah. And, I and, that. and he, and, you know, and he was one of the originators of the, of the inflationary model. But he 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 comes out and says that the problem with inflation right now is that you need a special kind of inflation in order to equal the cosmos we live in right now. And I, I and I don't think we're going to solve the multiverse or the inflation problem on the show tonight. Today we've already taken on two two deep mysteries: dark dark matter, dark energy. But I think that what's important here is that all these concepts are sort of linked together. Yeah. They're sort of linked together, and it makes for a very intriguing sort of story of modern cosmology right now. Um, and and be, but be, but before we, we close, I one of the things that comes across in your book that makes it such good reading is is you talk about what I would call the race for priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, among 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 scientists and and too many times I think uh, many people think that that scientists are some kind of saintly figures practicing this objective sterile discipline called called science where all they care about is truth truth and and justice and 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 uh, and finding the 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 real theory when when they're actually real people who care about being recognized. Is right. You know, it's, it's, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, no, no. I was no. I I wanted you to talk a little bit about about what you discovered in in doing your research uh, about about the way science works out there in the real world. Sure. Uh, yeah. It's you know. I find I find that uh, some people are really resistant to this idea that we're that we're discussing now about scientists being human. <laughs> they don't. They don't want to hear about it. Uh, and, um, and, and even in the face of evidence, they'll, they'll say, well, yeah, but, you know, and it's like, no, it's not, well, yeah, but I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is one of the things that really interests me is the sociology behind the scenes, uh, because it's not pretty, it's, it's human, you know, it's like, you, you know, when people resist this idea, I think, but scientists are just human. I mean, they're, 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 they're constrained by, uh, and, and, Perhaps unconstrained by um, by elements that are human. You know, we were talking earlier about uh, assumptions that scientists make that we all make that turn out to be wrong, and there are assumptions we didn't even realize we were making. Well, that's just part of being human. I mean, you know, there there so so there is this this impetus to uh, to get there first um, for various reasons, for prestige, for honors, awards. Uh, and um, posterity, and you know, it's always kind of funny. Um, you know, I think if, if think of it this way: if 
if science were objective, then who cares about posterity? Right. Right. Yeah. But um, but people want the Nobel Prize. Uh, they really they really want it, and they want their name to live on. So uh, so in the 1990s, when there were two teams that were racing to discover what they assumed was going to be the rate at which the universe was slowing down. Uh, and instead, they got this um, counterintuitive result that it was speeding up. They were they were very, very uh, competitive with each other. One group was physicists who were edging into astronomy, and the other group were astronomers uh, and who resisted the physicists and said they don't know what they're doing. We're astronomers. Um, what, you you mentioned that there's a unity in the book. I'm glad that that I'm really glad that that came across. That there is this one overarching story where everything begins to fit together. Uh, and, and so this competition between this group of physicists and this group of astronomers, um, to my mind, represents how things come together. Because it turns out that the physicists were going into astronomy because astronomy was increasingly becoming uh, in, intermeshed with physics. That, you know, astronomy, I mean, it's not, it's not so much that the physicists were moving toward astronomy, it's that is that the problems that you had to deal with in astronomy and cosmology were moving into physics. Right. So even the astronomers who prided themselves on not being physicists had to learn physics. I mean, by the time you get to, uh, to I mean, not, not that they were ignorant of physics, of course, but, but by the time you get to the evidence for an accelerating universe, as we were saying earlier, you've got to go to general relativity. You've got to, get to, you've got to deal with physics. You know, yeah. um, and and the whole evolution of the universe. This is a um, this is a conceptual revolution over the past uh, three decades or so. Um, in order to understand the expansion of the universe, in order to understand the universe, you have to understand the primordial elements, the things that were being created at the beginning of the universe, and though and that's particle physics. So you know, in order to understand cosmology. You have to, you know, the large scale of the universe, this thing that is, you know, billions and billions and billions of light years uh, across, uh, you have to understand particle physics at the very smallest. And as we were just discussing, you need to, dis you need to understand quantum physics and you need to see how the two don't, don't match. So, so there was an intense competition between these two groups racing to get, and, and you know, and, and, and bad mouthing each other. It was really, it was really, um, uh, ugly at times. Yeah, it, really, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't a good nature competition. It know? really, it really, it really is. It really is something else. It, 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 and in many ways, the Nobel Prize is serving its purpose, which is that there's no doubt it motivates scientific investigation, scientific theory, scientific discovery. There is no doubt, and it is probably the most prestigious award in, in, in any field that that somebody could get it also as far as i know has has a pretty good monetary award too but leaving that aside uh when 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 you have different people different scientists who are vying for this trophy the competition gets pretty cutthroat and, and that i mean it really it really is no different than a lot of other things whether it's whether it's being the star football player or being homecoming queen i mean it, it really it really harks back to to the same kind of competition in other fields and and that I think is an important point that that and it really I think it's it it should give everybody some some motivation to think through some of these ideas themselves because these are real people yeah they're better educated they 
they they're they're very smart but but in many in many instances uh they're they're just trying their best to to be recognized and there's nothing separating them from from anybody else. I mean, look at Vera Rubin. I mean, Albert Einstein. What he made his greatest discoveries as a patent clerk, right? right. I mean, he. I mean, I mean, when he when he became really famous, the, sort of the creativity started started dying away a little bit. Well, it's um, often the case with physicists. I mean, they make their greatest discoveries in their twenties. Yeah, yeah. It really, it really is something. So, so uh, I like to I like to close by thanking you for your time. Uh, I want to again put a little plug in for this. For this book, those out there that are looking for a book that's good reading but educational, uh, I, I do recommend Richard's book, The 4% Universe. And I'm sure it's available on Amazon and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, I, I want to say in closing here. Wait, may, before you sorry, say something, ahead, can I say one, one more thing? Because you were just talking about the Nobel Prize. Your, your listeners might not realize that. Uh, that the discovery of the acceleration of the universe did receive the Nobel Prize in 2011. Right, and it was it was shared among a bunch of people, right? Right. Yes. Right. Yes. The two groups right, shared right. it. Right. So that's that's right. Right. Good point. That's a that's extremely important uh, because because it under it underscores the the significance of that of that finding. But it, but in closing, I just wanna I just wanna uh, give a quote here that's that's read a lot. But it's something to keep in mind, and that is in, in, the, in the year 1900, Lord Calvin, a famous chemist, physicist out of the UK, I believe, gave a speech and he said, quote, There is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. So 113 years ago, Lord Calvin thought that physics had, had all the answers, and clearly, from looking at these mysteries of dark matter, dark energy, we know that the mysteries remain. Uh, we tend to think of science as if it figured out everything from the creation of the universe to why the galaxies are arrayed across the heavens to the origin of life, but the truth is actually different. Science is really a quest to understand and a quest that is still in progress. Yeah, scientists love to be surprised. That's what and, they want, and, and that and that's something that I really think comes across, and that it's it's it, that that old that other old saying, something like, uh, you know, the journey is more pleasurable than the getting there, or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it seems it seems as if science scientists don't really want to get all the answers because it's the journey, it's right. the quest that's really fun. So, right. so Richard Paddock, thank you very much for your time. This is Philip thank you. Burton. Glad this to be is, here. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 